0: Welcome to the Big Unlock podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations.
1: Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty. And it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Dr. Peter Tibet, founder and CEO of CareMesh. Peter, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a great privilege. Thank you, thank you. So, Peter, you have a very interesting background, and uh, among other things, you're also the first person to have developed a commercial antivirus software. So. Tell us how all that came about.
0: <laughs> well, I was one of those tech engineering nuts even when I was a teenager. I was a ham radio operator and a commercial radio engineer and a pilot. and I was one of those couple of kids that were allowed in high school to, to touch the 55-baud teletype locked in the, in the closet. And in college, I, I stumbled into more things. I, I used a very similar computer in a lab doing really early cholesterol and hyperlipidemia work and i used it to automate their analysis and results and then in for my college thesis i wound up as an apprentice and assistant for two different nobel prize winners the the first guy sequenced the first protein and the second guy bruce merrifield synthesized the first protein and i was there you know and used computers in his lab to automate that whole process and along the way was the first guy to synthesize an active immunoglobulin. (laughs) And of course, all of that got me a scholarship for an MD-PhD at Case Western Reserve. And then when I was at Case, I was president of the Cleveland Computer Club. I started a software company in my attic trying to do other sorts of things. And when the virus problem came along, I created the first commercial antivirus. It was called Vaccine, but eventually changed its name. We wound up in a booth, a few booths down from Steve Jobs at the West Coast Computer Fair. We grew that company, which was called Certus, for a couple of years before McAfee and the other guys came along. And we sold it to Mantec and renamed it Norton Antivirus and then grew it in two more years past 300 million bucks. It was the big heydays that everybody you know, likes to, to hear about.
1: Yeah, wow, Norton an Antivirus. Now that's a household name almost. Wow, that's a lot to do with those guys now, of course. Yeah, well, fascinating story. I do want to spend a few minutes, given your background with software security and antivirus software and so on. I do want to spend a few minutes on this podcast talking about the current state of cybersecurity. You know, healthcare has been the target of cyber criminals for several years now. And my understanding is that it is the favorite industry for cyber attacks. I read somewhere that the annual cost of healthcare data breaches is in the region of $4 billion, and uh, there's no signs that is abating anytime soon. And four out of five data breaches are attributed to healthcare data breaches, and providers in particular are being singled out for these attacks. So can you kind of break it down for us and and tell us what the big issues are today as it relates to information security in healthcare?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously security is a huge subject. Maybe I can talk you into doing a whole podcast on it down the line. But you know, security is hard, but it's it's really not as hard as we all give it credit for. My big I'm kind of a scientist in this world and I spent a lot of energy over the last 20 or 30 years trying to get a sense for how that the risk economics really work. And my biggest take home over the years is that we've really typically get talked into putting what my mom says is putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) We spend a huge amount of money and user equity on things that have very low marginal value, and we ignore a lot of the simple, inexpensive things that are relatively easy. For example, you mentioned ransomware. The basic solution to that is backup. Nothing fancy, right? And oddly, using some of these newer information sharing services, like my uh, company's new CareMesh offering, that gets some of your data accessible in other ways, all by itself is a mitigation for things like ransomware. If you look at the breach science and look at how that works out in risk dollars, there's really just two things that reduce the overall cost and risk and likelihood of a breach by vastly majority than all other things combined. The first one is strong identity. Despite what everybody says, making passwords stronger or more complex doesn't do squat but adding a second factor, like the code that comes to your phone or a token or whatever, that reduces risk by many, many, many orders of magnitude. So turn those things on, that's really simple and it is really, really hugely strong. The other thing is around network management, running your own data server and data centers and firewalls and all that stuff are hard and expensive and we're all error prone but any one of the cloud providers has a hundredfold more security and ops people than any IT health organization does. And, you know, they have the
1: experience, use the cloud, embrace it. Those are the key issues. Yeah, you know, just coincidentally this morning, I was on a Twitter chat with a group of cybersecurity professionals and a couple of things came out of that discussion. And these are very commonsensical type of things. The two big issues that the participants in the chat pointed out were one, it's a culture issue, less of a technology issue, more of a culture issue. And uh, really educating everyone in the organization at every level to be watchful of phishing attacks or to your point, turn on two factor authentication. It's a cultural thing. And so you got to have the right kind of culture to protect yourself against cyber attacks. And the second thing they, uh, they talked about was, in the context of healthcare, the business associates are a big point of vulnerability. So, care to comment on those two observations?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the power is clearly in the hints of the attacker. When, if you've got a million people and you can succeed at 1% opening a phishing email, that 1% is in trouble. So, a big attack surface is how we talk about that. But two-factor authentication works even against phishing attacks. The bad guy gets your password, so what? It still doesn't work. So really, really, you have to do both. Don't spend all your energy worrying about one thing. You need seatbelts and airbags, right? (laughs) And speed signs and all the others, and they all work together to really reduce things.
1: Yeah. Okay, I kind of agree with you. We should do a separate podcast down the road just talking about uh, cybersecurity issues. But for today, let's switch gears here and talk about your company. Uh, Tell us about CareMesh briefly, the company and the solution you've developed, and what is the marketplace need you're trying to address? Yeah,
0: thanks so much. I'm a doctor. I spent most of my time doing emergency room medicine and paying for all these startups (laughs) by working at night in the ER. But I've long been frustrated that doctors can't simply send a patient record to some other doctor or to some other clinic. It's like we're in the years before the internet ever came along. A huge hospital system client of ours reinforced that for me again lately. They work this giant referral academic center. They take care of 20, 30% of their patients come from more than 25 miles away. You know, when they send those patients back home, half of those doctors get a two-page fax, and the other half get two pages sent to them in the U.S. mail, I'm not kidding, (laughs) the likelihood of getting a digital record outside of that 25 or 30 mile range is nearly zero. And this is nuts, right? This isn't how the world should work. It drives the doctors nuts on both ends. It drives the patients crazy. And even the average hospital that's not at that pinnacle of of, uh, referrals to the world, where two thirds of their community doctors are using a different EHR than the hospital, less than 20% of those outside doctors Routinely get digitally useful, you know, patient data, and almost none of them can communicate back and forth with the big hospital or the doctors or whatever. So CareMesh came along to change all of that. We decided to make a set of global, national, you know, secure services that don't require complex IT infrastructure. So hospitals can easily discharge patients or send referrals right from their own EHR to any physician or practice in the country, and not make that other end have to do anything or buy anything or even know who the heck care mesh is. Like when you send a FedEx, when they came along, the idea was give it to us and we'll get it wherever it needs to go, even if it's on some weird island somewhere. That's our problem. So a hospital should be able to simply look up a patient in their own EHR, enhanced by our national care mesh provider directory, and push the send button or the complete button. So hospitals can also automate the setting of detailed admission and discharge summaries, not just ADTs and pings, without requiring a recipient to submit patient panels or log into portals or pull lists of patients or other things like that. So CareMesh is a solution like none other available in the healthcare industry, giving hospitals the ability to quickly and securely send patient records to any outside clinician. Of course, we want to completely embrace new cloud compute models and strong identity and modern high-end security and privacy and all that and make those problems go away as well for the participating hospitals. And any big platform can do a lot more than just sending records from hospitals or getting two-way communication going or keeping things digital because hospitals need to be able to efficiently share data outside their walls care coordination, patient safety, reducing readmissions, unnecessary ER visits, analytics, you know, almost everything requires digital communication. So we want to be complementary to the stuff that already works, like HIEs and EMRs, but they just don't work well enough.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it seems like there's two aspects to what you're trying to do. One is uh, having a robust uh, provider data management system process platform. Where you can go to it as a single source of truth, and it really is the truth as it relates to provider data. And then using the same platform or related functionalities that draw on the platform, you're using it for care coordination, uh, you know, doctor patient communication, and so on and so forth. Am I right? Are these the two broad components of your platform?
0: Yeah, we think of it as finding the doctor in the first place or the clinic, right? I want to send a message to Dr. Smith in, you know, in Salt Lake City, right? The patient just knows it's Dr. Smith, right? And figuring out which Dr. Smith and and, and making that part easy from within your own EHR for whoever the clerical or clinical person is, that's the directory problem. And then that once you find the person, making it so that Just doing whatever you normally do, you know, a doctor's order to discharge and a clerical person following up with the pieces that need to happen to get the record out there. Or the doctor going into the messenger or the in-basket or whatever it is in their EHR and finding somebody that's outside their building and saying, you know, asking them a quick question or something. That's the directory problem. Then once you find the person, you want all the natural things to happen so that when you hit the complete button or the send button, they actually receive the message right? <laughs> and it works, right? And it's digital and it, it helps them at the other end as well. So that's the delivery problem. Of course, it's not as easy as all that. You've got to get HIPAA going and compliance and interoperability and make it easy on the other end and, and make the reimbursements all happen right and make compliance and incentive payments from PI and all that stuff work. But yes, those are the main two components.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about the competitive landscape that you operate in. You know, provider data management has long been a, an issue in healthcare. If I recall it right, it's like a three billion dollar problem or something like that. There's lots of companies trying to address it uh, and using different technologies. You know, there's one uh, alliance group of you know companies that's using blockchain, for instance, to create the single version of truth among other things. And everyone, every doctor that I've talked to would love to have the single source of truth where they don't have to keep on, you know, credentialing themselves again and again. They go to this one place where, you know, everybody has it all in one place and it's all the single source of truth. But it is a competitive landscape. Lots of people are trying to solve this problem as well. At the same time, it comes to the other aspects of your platform, the care coordination, the messaging and so on, the EHR vendors, Epic, Cerner's, big tech firms. How do you see yourself in this competitive landscape and what do you think makes... You a little bit different yeah the
0: technology like blockchain versus not seems to me to be pretty irrelevant the most important thing is as you said figuring out how to solve the i call it the surround problems i i wrote one of the chapters in ed marx's book on innovation Uh and i know you're working a little bit with him what a great project you guys are working on and it seems to me that, that things that actually get the job done when there's a huge legacy installed base of things is not trying to fight the installed base, but trying to complement it, right? Work within the system that's already there and figure out how to extend it relatively easily, right? Trying to, you know, making programs that just decide you're going to blow up whatever is there and start over again is kind of crazy. So if you can make a directory, you know, Ours is fire-enabled, and it'll work through a browser or phone or any of that. But that doesn't help the hospital. You, you need to make it so that... It just becomes the natural directory that's used by all the services that already use the directory in the hospital, like your Epic in-basket or the discharge flows or whatever, right? And just make that disappear so that no workflow changes happen, right? And then you got the other issue. But when you get to the competitive things, I I think of this as healthcare is wildly local, and it always has been and the technology that follows it has been local as well so it's been really easy to hire a big contractor and spend a million bucks hooking your hospital at the other hospital and after you spend a year planning and a year doing and a year fixing it works right (laughs) but now you've got two points connected well you know if you do the math there's five thousand plus hospitals and two or three hundred thousand clinics that would be 200 300 thousand factorial connections and baas and all that that's by the way more than there are grains of sand on earth <laughs> so this is stupid we can't this isn't something that could possibly scale so what we need is analogous to what we got when we built the internet we need a way that everybody can use the same network for all of the basics You know, to not to find the other guy, but also to get something to them without file size limits or or anything like that. We need something that works with the EMR vendors and the HIEs and extends their functionality naturally. And we need something that enables all the care coordination platforms. I don't want to build a care coordination platform. I just want to make the ones that are out there actually work for somebody who isn't involved, so for some other end that didn't buy the other end. Making everybody buy both ends of a fax machine or a telephone is nuts. That's not how those industries
1: evolved and ours can't get there either. So uh, how do you build a business case? And I understood from what you said that you're working with the existing technology stack or solutions that are out there and making them better. So how do you actually build a business case? What do people look for uh, when trying to justify investment in your platform?
0: Yeah, it turns out that meaningful, I was on the PTAC, the President's Information Technology Advisory Committee. I, I don't know, it's going on 20 years ago with Brailer and, and that whole gang. And, you know, we said if health, you know, this is a triple aim in, in my words, slightly, if healthcare could only use information technology in rough parity to banking or other industries, we'd get three things, right? We'd get wildly healthier people and uh, better long long lives and all that. We'd get wildly lower costs. Our study in the PTAC showed about 70 or $80 billion a year, but, but the Institute of Medicine came along and did the big study and came to $700 billion a year <laughs> of savings for the country. And we'd get an entirely new kind of science, but other than that, it's, you know, it's probably not worth doing. <laughs> so we're all married to this, right? And we now have computers everywhere but they're a pain. Everybody you know, hates them. It's, it's largely because we haven't added the sharing and the internet part that makes that, that work. And so meaningful use came along and we checked our 25 or 15 or 20 or 10 or 16 boxes and got our checks. And now it's switched to PI, Promoting Interoperability. And the PI penalties are real. Two of the six criteria are called referral loops or HIE measures or, you know, getting your care coordination uh, going. They explicitly require getting off of fax for a large proportion of referrals and discharge and transitions of care out of your own organization. 40 of the 50 points you need for PI, and that's 2% or 3% of your hospital payments from Medicare. So that. You know, for a medium or a bigger hospital, that's five ten fifteen million bucks of penalty, so there's real meat now behind some of those, and those the screws are tightening a little bit on that arena, and so there's some value there. We see the biggest value uh, for getting this working you know the two thirds or three quarters or whatever it is of doctors and clinics that don't work for you in a hospital. We really need to coordinate with these guys in the past, we've ignored the people on the other side. But now that we've fixed the inside and it's possible to do all the basics in the hospital, now it's time to sort of extend. I hear this all the time from the CIOs. We spent the last five years making this work at all. <laughs> right? Now, it's if we can only get the outside providers' data and get them engaged and make it so that their job is easier and maybe make it so that they get some PI benefit or efficiency benefit or, you know, we're still spending a huge amount of our time on the telephone and waiting around for the other doctor to talk to the other doctor or hiring a massive care coordinators to call and to show up at eight o'clock every morning and, and dial for dollars. And this is all nuts. This is 20 years ago. The internet fixed that for other industries. And it's easy enough to find efficiency value to find a value of tightening up your referral network and getting above 50, 60% uh, referral linkage. and you know two three five percent improvements in referral linkage add up to many millions of dollars of new revenue for a hospital.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. You mentioned uh, banking and you mentioned you know, how other industries are much further ahead. And John Glasser, who is uh, the former CIO of Partners Healthcare, who's uh, on my board of advisors, he wrote an article about this in the Harvard Business Review where he pointed to this exact same uh, contrast between banking and healthcare. And he makes the argument that, you know, you don't have to go the whole hog uh, and do everything that banking has done. But even if you do it selectively and move the needle, there's significant gains to be had. And one of my other guests on the podcast, Daniel Barchi, who is the CIO of New York Presbyterian, he made a very telling comment. He said, we have really low thresholds today for digital engagement in healthcare. You know, if somebody uses an online platform just to schedule an appointment, that counts as digital engagement and, you know, that counts towards digital enablement for patients, and it can qualify you, to your point, for all kinds of incentives or, conversely, penalties as the case may be. Healthcare, I think, is very unique in that regard because there's a system of incentives and penalties that is driving, in many ways, digital adoption. Is that a fair statement?
0: Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that the regulators have the right end game in mind, you know, and I think that the knobs are roughly aligned and reasonably aligned. But, you know, nobody, no business aligns themselves around regulatory incentives unless it's also valuable to the business. I've had, I can't tell you how many CIO discussions I've had where I said, why aren't you worried about this $3 million penalty? And the answer is, You know, I spend so much of my energy worrying about that that I wouldn't do my business, (laughs) right? We have to solve our real problems inside the business. And if we can make it align with getting two or three more million dollars or 10 or whatever it is out of the feds, fine, right? But it can't be the principal driver. And so the argument in banking is they've got a simpler data set than we do in healthcare, and that's true. But tearing things down to the simple issue You know, meds, problems, allergies, and demographics, get that actually working, make it actually digital and get it sharing in both directions and make it work easily, whether the other end is using a browser or there's hundreds of EMRs. It might be one your brother-in-law invented and there's 12 other users in the country that you still have to make it work with whatever the other guy is using and getting down to the basics and making the communication work at the really basic level is the key. And, you know, once the basics are working, it's easy enough to extend those a little
1: bit. Um, yeah. For a close here, Peter, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on what you're seeing your customers and health systems in general investing in as it relates to the digital transformation. What are the top two or three things that you think or that you see them focused on?
0: Yeah, as I, I, I think that the As a community, the health systems and IT activities in hospitals and bigger health systems has gotten the inside job pretty well under control. They are feeling like they've got, you know, actual functional EMRs, EHRs that actually do the basics and people are being productive with them on the inside. And so I think there is a view towards the outside. We call it different names. We call it care coordination. We call it social determinants. We call it, you know, enabling you know, the home health workers, all those. we got lots of different names for all this stuff. It's, in the end, it's a variant of virtual health. It's getting, you know, getting the communication working. In the case of B2B, getting it working among providers means that you don't have to force the patient to uh, carry the record or come get it or be the middle, middle man. And everybody wants the patient to have the data and be able to deal with it. But none of us make, it doesn't make a lot of sense to force the patient to be the connectivity link. <laughs> so I think that we're getting towards this place in our world where we are enabling the communications. You know, these platforms like Care Quality and the national sharing platform, they're getting some traction. The vendor platforms by Epic and others, they're getting good traction. They enable good pieces of what needs to happen, but they don't enable two-way communication. They don't enable, you know, messaging. They don't often enable the giant things like x-ray sharing or other pieces. They often don't enable the little guy very well on the oddball platform. And so, you know, providing the, the glue that sort of fills in the gaps between the stuff that does work seems to me to be the place to be. And I think the venture community and the venture incubators in hospitals and health systems and those kind of groups, they're really a powerhouse. They're the ones that can get the little startup guys and the new innovation guys. They can keep them on track. They can give them the focus they need because all kinds of people have good ideas. But all of us, in science—you know we largely are scientists in this world and business people and the venture world and the and incubator they're supposed to be experienced and the good ones do help focus on actually making the change happen
1: yeah that's well said in fact in my recent podcast i had a couple of senior executives from epic and they kind of pretty much said uh, the same thing that you just said at least in terms of their product focus and their platform focus in terms of facilitating the uh, seamless exchange of information if you will well Peter, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. There's a lot that we can talk about and uh, hope to carry on with the conversation and have you back on our podcast sometime soon. In the meantime, I wish uh, your company, Kermesh, and your team all the very best and uh, look forward to staying in touch.
0: Great. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at